good to see you here at our five o'clock teaching service. And we are looking forward to our revival service as well this evening, where uh, William Lee, Gypsy William Lee, who was with us last night, uh, is staying also this evening. And last night, 17 people got saved, and uh, we saw some miracles and healings. So we're excited about uh, this evening. Um, Today, we are in our third in the series on the Sermon of the Mount. And a couple of people have asked me, uh, is there any good books I could recommend to go along with this series? So I thought I'd mention at least two today. And the first one is uh, a recent book. It's either this year or last year that it was published. And this is The Sermon on the Mount by R.T. Kendall. R.T. Kendall. It really is an excellent book. It's a big book, as you can see, but it's very, very readable. So if you're interested in going deeper in your own time during this series, I recommend the Sermon on the Mount. The second book that I recommend on this subject is Collins from Colin Dye, our senior ministers, from the Sword of the Spirit series, The Rule of God, How to Live Life, really, in the, in the Spirit. And there is a whole chapter um, in this book on what I taught on last week, takes it a bit deeper, the Beatitudes. So these are the two books, there's others, but these are the two books that I would recommend um, to you today. Um, I've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount and I realize that six sessions is just not enough time to teach what we need to teach here. And so we're going to be extending this series um, at least into June as well. And I think when you hear some of the things that I'm teaching on today, you'll think that it's worth listening to. And I think you'll agree with me that we shouldn't rush through this book. Let me just backtrack. Some of you may be new with us today, and maybe you're new watching on the internet. Don't forget that this series, all of it on Monday afternoons, by Monday afternoon, Tuesday at the latest, this series is put up on our website. So if you've missed any of the earlier ones, you can always see it at your own leisure in, uh, in the internet. And um, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, let me just remind you of a few things before we go into the section that I want to look at today. The Sermon on the Mount, R.T. Kendall calls the Sermon on the Mount Jesus's doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That's what he calls it, Jesus's teaching on the Holy Spirit. And remember, the Sermon on the Mount, it's not for everybody. It is targeted at the Spirit-filled believer. You must be born again and with the power of God on your life to be able to live the precepts and principles that are shared by Jesus in the greatest sermon that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher and mentor of R.T. Kendall himself, uh, says this about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a great and grand and perfect elaboration of what our Lord called the new commandment, that we love one another even as he has loved us. So think about this, and I think there are two good quotes. R.T. Kendall says, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' teaching on the Holy Spirit. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the Sermon on the Mount is an illustration and an explanation of the great commandment that Jesus, or that Jesus gave to us to love one another as he loved us. Last week, we spent some time in Matthew chapter 5, the first 
11 verses, looking at the Beatitudes, uh, the character of a spirit-filled believer. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I mentioned that a lot of people teach on the Beatitudes almost by itself. But the Beatitudes are only the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount, after the Beatitudes, uh, that, is the, that is the illustrations and examples of how somebody who lives like the character of the Beatitudes will behave. It's like in the beginning, in the introduction of, of any sermon, in an introduction, you always set the scene of where you're going in the main body of your sermon. And Jesus, in giving us, in this nutshell, in these few verses, the Beatitudes, the character of a spirit-filled believer. It's so wonderful. We looked briefly at it last week. But the question is, how do you live Jesus as uh, poor in spirit, uh, as one who mourns, as, as one who's humble, as one who's pure in heart, as one who's merciful? How does that work in our daily lives, in our daily workplaces? It seems such a wonderful character because the Beatitudes are a character of the, ho- of, of, of the spirit-filled Christian. In fact, they represent what Paul does in Galatians when he speaks about the fruit of the Spirit. If you have the fruit of the Spirit, you'll have the character of the Beatitudes. If you cultivate the character of the Beatitudes by the Word and the Spirit, you will have the fruit of the Spirit. But how does this work in our daily relationships with one another? How does it work in our prayer and our worship, in what we do to people that mistreat us? How do we live this character, Lord? Well, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' explanation of the Beatitudes. That means you can't just rush into the Sermon on the Mount like many do and pull a scripture here and pull a scripture there and take it out of context. You have to understand that the Sermon on the Mount is explaining how to live the Beatitudes. And so when the Beatitudes finish in verse 10 uh, and, and 11... What we do is, is we then see the next section, which is the reaction of the world to a spirit-filled believer, to one who has the character of the Beatitudes. And that reaction is an insult and persecution. You see, to live the character of the Beatitudes that I elaborated on last week, you will be revolutionary in the world. You will stand out and people won't like a radical discipleship. There's going to be a reaction to the world. That's there in chapter 5 verses 11 to 12. Then in verses 13 to 16 we have the next section which speaks about the spirit-filled believer, the one who's cultivating the Beatitudes, living by the Spirit, obeying the the, the law of love. What is the spirit-filled believers function in society. I'm not going to go into this today because there's so much on this already. I don't feel it's necessary, but you are the salt of the world. Uh, You are the light of the world, the city on the hill. 
the spirit-filled believer, the person that, that lives by the anointing of God and through obedience to the word of God, the Sermon on the Mount, is a light in a dark society. The person that lives and allows the Holy Spirit to cultivate the Beatitudes is one that salts society. And salt, especially in this passage, is a preservative. In those days, they didn't really have refrigeration. And so the way to keep meat from rotting, especially in the hot countries, within a day the meat would, would be done, was to rub salt in it. This type of character, the person that lives according to the Sermon on the Mount, spiritual principles, that person will salt the society that they're in. They'll bring light and illumination into darkness. And Jesus says, don't hide your light under a bucket. We can't live the spirit-filled life in private. The Christian life is not a private life. It's a life that shows the light of Jesus and his spirit. But where I want to pick this up today, and my title of this particular sermon, is The Righteousness That Exceeds the Law. The Righteousness That Exceeds the Law is in verse 17. So if you have your Bibles, I do like you, if you have Bibles, to have them open in front of you so that you can see these things in context. Verse 17. Some of the most misunderstood verses in the Gospels. Jesus says, after saying, let your light shine and your good works be seen by those that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. And then he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven of heaven. We've had the Beatitudes. We've had the reaction to the spirit-filled believer. We've had a, de a description of how we're to be salt and light and let our good spirit-filled works shine as a testimony to this world. And then Jesus turns and begins to speak about the law. Remember, from 517 onwards, we are looking at an elaboration an extension and an explanation of the Beatitudes. And here in 5 verse 17, Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this claim, do not think I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I did not come to abolish to fulfill. He says this promise of Jesus to fulfill the law, not abolish it, but to fulfill the law was the most incredible claim that Jesus ever made. Just step back and think about that. His claim not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, was the most incredible claim that Jesus ever made. Many people struggle with these verses saying, well, is, is Jesus saying that the law still exists today? Or, or spirit-filled 
Christians and believers? Are we to go to the law of Moses and obey its commands? Is this what Jesus is saying? And some people believe that he is. Some people believe that in this, some preachers and teachers believe that Jesus is saying that as Christians we should live according to the moral law. Let me just remind you about the law that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the Mosaic law. The law that came to Moses from God through the agency of angels and that he brought to the people of Israel. 13, uh, 1,300 years before Christ. And this law that you can find in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, etc. This law... People usually split it up into three aspects, the law of Moses. The first aspect of the law of Moses that modern scholars look at is the ceremonial part. You know, how to worship God and the, the requirements of the Levites and the temple and, and how you bring a sacrifice and when and the day of atonement and Passover and the, the whole ceremonial worship aspect that is stated as the law. That's the ceremonial aspect. The second part that modern scholars uh, identify in the law is the civil part of the law. In other words, how the nation, under the law of Moses, was to govern its people. And so there are instructions, aren't they, on, on how to punish people, on stru instructions on, on places of refuge. And so Israel, in the Old Testament, the law of Moses was given to govern the civil aspect of a nation. So we've had ceremonial, civil and the final part of the law that modern scholars and preachers often speak about, the third part, is the moral part of the law. Summed up, I suppose, in the Ten Commandments. And many Christians today say that when Jesus is speaking here, he is commanding Christians, the church, to live by the Ten Commandments. Many people teach that Christians, of course, don't have to follow the ceremonial part of the law. We're not expected to circumcise uh, our, our children, our boys. We're not expected to eat, uh, uh, to, to not eat pork. Jesus made all foods clean. But many preachers and teachers say, but we are expected to follow the Ten Commandments. Well, if you've had an opportunity to purchase my book recently out last month called No More Law, if you began to read that, you'll know that my belief is, and our belief here at KT, is that actually there is no more law for the believer. And why do we say that? Well, this is a strong passage in the Sermon on the Mount. They're going to show you that we are no longer under the law. The Sermon on the Mount is, is not Jesus' new Ten Commandments, even though we're going to look at some of the Ten Commandments here. It's not Jesus saying, I've got some new laws for you. It's the New Testament version of the Old Testament law. No, what have we already said, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that, that the Sermon on the Mount is an illustration and examples and principles, not laws, of Jesus' one law. You should love one another. R.T. Kendall, in his summary, I repeat again, of the Sermon on the Mount, says, this is Jesus' doctrine or teaching of the Holy Spirit. So those two great teachers don't see the application of the law here in our lives. But when we come to this passage, what is Jesus talking about? Now, listen to this. Isn't it interesting? In verse 17, this is very powerful. Jesus says this, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. 
think a second. Why did he say that? Why, why would he address this audience and say, don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets? What had he said or what was he doing that people would be thinking that? You hear what I'm saying? For Jesus to say, don't think it, there must have been some people thinking, do you know what? I think Jesus is going to abolish the law. Some must have been thinking, do you know, I, I think he's going to abolish the prophets. I think he's going to do something radically new. He's going to finish the law. And there was a, a thinking in Judaism at that time. They believed that the son of man of Daniel 7. You remember the son of man of Daniel 7? And Jesus did call to him and refer, ref, Jesus referred to himself as the son of man more than any other title. So maybe they thought, and there was thinking that when God sent his Messiah, the son of man, that he would bring in a new age for Israel that would finish the era of the law. So maybe they were looking at Jesus and thinking, do you know what? He calls himself son of man. If, if he's the man from Daniel chapter 7, maybe he's going to abolish the law. Also, look at what Jesus had been doing in his ministry so far. I mean, when he, when he began to preach the gospel, it says that he went around teaching and preaching what in the synagogues? The gospel, the good news, and healing all of their sick. So Jesus' ministry, right from the beginning, he was going into the synagogues preaching good news. If you don't know what that good news is, just look up Luke chapter 4 and Jesus describes what his good news is. He says, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news. To bring sight to the blind, to release the bondage, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, to bring good news to the poor, liberty to the oppressed. God's preaching was a deliverance from the power and evil of this fallen world. And his good news was a year of favor, of liberty. Interesting, isn't it? If you read, you don't hear this. Jesus went around the synagogues and the towns, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, and teaching the law. You don't see that, do you? So some must have been saying, well, maybe he's going to abolish the law. Because he certainly doesn't say much about it. He keeps preaching about freedom and forgiveness and deliverance and healing and the favorable year of the law. But I've not heard him expound the law. He's not, he doesn't seem to be like one of the scribes of the Pharisees. His preaching is totally different about different things. It's not about the, the law at all. And also, finally, in, in asking why Jesus would say, hey, I need you to know I've not come to abolish the law. Why would they think it? Because in everything that he's taught so far in the Sermon on the Mount, there's not been one mention of the law, is there? He didn't say in order to live the Beatitudes, you must follow the law of Moses. He never mentioned that, did he? He said, you're salt and you're light and, and, and you are these things. If you are poor in spirit, if you are Humble, if you are merciful, if you are pure, if you are a peacemaker, if this is your characteristics, then this is the good news. He never said the law. So somebody might be thinking, this is interesting. Here's Jesus preaching primarily to his disciples, although others were there. This is a message to his disciples. And, he's, and he hasn't even mentioned the law yet. And everything he's saying that we should do so far, we don't need the law 
to do it. So when Jesus comes and says, do not think that I came to abolish the law, we can see reasons why people thought that he might. Or the prophets. He says, I did not come to abolish. So what did he come to do? What did he come to do? Did he come to teach that we should continue in the law? The Ten Commandments, the moral, the ceremonial, or the civil, or one of the three, or two, or whatever. Did he come to say that these are for all time and you should follow them? Well, what did Jesus say? He says, I've not come to abolish. I've come to fulfill. Fulfill. This is the key word here. When we look at how Jesus is dealing with the law. Galatians 3 verse 19 um, is important here. Because it explains a little bit more about what Jesus is saying. Jesus, I mean, Paul in Galatians 3 verse 19 says this. Why then was the law given at all? Uh, Paul had said, if you want to be saved, all you have to do is believe. Believe that Jesus lived for you, died for you, rose again for you. And if you believe in Jesus, that he was raised from the dead, you are saved. You're what we call justified. What does the word justified means? Well, at simplest, it means this. Justified. It's justified never sinned. It's justified not sinning now. And it's just as if I'll never sin in the future. To be justified means to declare, be declared not guilty forever and a day. And so they're saying, well, Paul, what's the point of the law then? If justification, forgiveness of sins, becoming right with God is through faith in a man and his work, what is the law for? And Paul says, Galatians 3.19, why then was the law given to, to us? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. It was added because of transgressions. I unpackage this in my book, No More Law. But, but the law came for two, possibly three reasons. The law came in because of the great sin of the children of, 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 of the wilderness. For 430 years, from Abraham right down to Moses, God's people, they didn't know the Ten Commandments. They didn't need the Ten Commandments. They had no idea. The Ten Commandments weren't in existence for the first 430 years of Abraham's descendants. Well, how did they live? Through faith in the promises of God. And God had give pro give, given promises to the children of Israel that were in Egypt. He said, I'm not just going to give you a promise. I'm going to give you a promised land. All you have to do is walk with me and believe with me and hold my hand and I'll take you there. But they didn't. In fact, they so annoyed God and tested him that in the end he said, you shall not enter into the promised land. And the law came because of their sin. It was a tutor. It was a teacher to come in and deal with an unruly class that refused to be mature about the things of God. But it was also added not only uh, to, to reveal sin and to restrain sin. But it was there to prepare people for Jesus. It was a temporary measure. It was a temporary super teacher to come in and sort out an immature rebellious class called Israel. Until the time came of maturity when Jesus would come. So the law was only ever a temporary measure. You know, like some nations, if something goes wrong and, and there's, there's rebellion and the army's called out and, uh, and it's a state of emergency, they bring in temporary laws, don't they? 
And the temporary laws are in there because of the seriousness of the state of emergency. There's more powers, more laws. But when the state of emergency ends, so do those temporary laws. It's exactly what the law was brought in for a temporary measure to prepare people for when the seed came. When the seed came, then the law would no longer be needed. It would be fulfilled. The law was not complete in itself. The law was looking for somebody. The law was looking for somebody that would come and meet all its demands. Somebody that would fulfill its purpose, fulfill its laws. Everything the law came to do, everything the law required, everything the law looked for. He was looking for a man or a woman that would be able to fulfill its purpose. And the law would be able to say, I no longer am needed. I've been fulfilled. The law pointed to Jesus, the Old Testament, the prophets. The law and the prophets speaks of the Old Testament. And Jesus, you see, his purpose was not just to keep the law, but to fulfill the law's purpose. When you say about something, well, its purpose has been fulfilled, or somebody says, you know, I've been in this company now for 10 years, and I feel that my time here has been fulfilled. What do you mean? You mean I've done everything that I, I can do here and it's time for me to move on. You know, when a football manager uh, takes a team to a place like the, 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 the current manager of Barcelona has said, you know what, my time here is fulfilled. He's done so well, hasn't he, for that, 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 that great team? But he's like, I can't take it anymore. I can't take it any further. My time here has been fulfilled. What does that mean? It means it's end of a relationship. And so when Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, it's a big difference. He's come to fulfill its purpose, not just to turn up and say, law, don't need that anymore, let's ignore it. On the contrary, Jesus was not ignoring the law at all. He wasn't ignoring it. Look what he just says there in verse 18. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, not, not the smallest stroke shall pass from this law until all is accomplished. See another important word. Can you see that? Accomplished. Fulfilled. Accomplished. He's not ignoring the law. He's saying the law's purpose needs to be fulfilled. The law's purpose needs to be accomplished. And until the law's purpose has been fulfilled, until, here he says, all is accomplished in regard to the law, not one law will pass away. Now notice what he's saying here. Jesus isn't saying some laws will pass away and some laws will stay, is he? He's not saying until, until all is accomplished, the moral law will not pass away, but the ceremonial law, we won't need that in the New, in the new Testament era. Uh, the civil law, well, we won't be needing that anymore. So th those will pass away, but the moral law, the Ten Commandments, that the Ten Commandments represent, that's going to stay. Did he say that? No. He said the smallest law, the tiniest precept of the law. Everything about the law, every commandment, Every stipulation, 
everything about the law. Not a bit, but all of it. And he's saying even the smallest bit that you might think, well, do we really need to do that tiny little thing? Jesus says, not one jot or tittle is the word. And the word that's in my passage, letter or stroke, it's talking about the smallest dot and comma of the Hebrew alphabet. In other words, there is nothing, not one little bit, Jesus says, of the law that will pass away until all things are accomplished to do with the law and all things are fulfilled. And then, uh, in, in, um, uh, uh, well, let me pick out something else here in verse 18. For I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter from the law shall be removed. Until heaven and earth pass away. See, Jesus was not anti-law, was he? I mean, he is speaking strongly. He's saying the law is from God. The law will be fulfilled, accomplished. It's temporary, but not one part of it. Until heaven and earth have passed away. Now, some people misread this and, and, and think, oh, well, that means that the law stands in all its points until the world ends. And therefore, in that type of mentality, it says, well, Christians should obey the law then. Why? Because has heaven and, heaven and earth passed away uh, yet? No, it hasn't. Oh, well, then the law hasn't passed away. The law, therefore, has not been accomplished. The law hasn't been fulfilled because Jesus says until heaven and, and earth are passed away. But that's not what it says in the Greek text. That's a wrong way of, of viewing it. What this, what this is saying is this. Heaven and earth will not pass away until these things have happened to the Lord. You hear what I'm saying? So, Paul, so Jesus is saying two things are going to pass away. Two things are going to change. Two things are going to pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. Do you know that? One day, the Bible teaches us, both here Jesus and later on, one day we are going to have at the consummation of all things a new heavens and a new earth. Why are we going to have a new heavens and a new earth? Because the present heavens and the present earth are fallen, decayed, fell when Adam fell. Do you know that you are living in a fallen world? Do you know that you're living in a broken world? Do you know that when God looks at the world, nature, he doesn't say it is good. He says this is a present evil age. Do you know that? Uh, this is the world, the universe, is not like it was when God created it and said, this is good. Something happened of the most cataclysmic kind. Adam fell. And when Adam fell, not only did humanity fall in Adam, but the whole of creation. Romans 8 tells us that creation groans. Can you imagine that? Fallen creation not just on the earth, but out there in the universe, there is a groaning, a groaning of pain by creation, groaning, desiring the revelation of the sons of God, desiring that day when Jesus will make all things new. So two things are going to pass away, heaven and earth, and also the law. But what, Pete, what Jesus is saying about the law and heaven and earth, he says, I want you to know that heaven and earth won't pass away until... These things take place. And so Jesus is talking about the whole law or no law at all. You see that? 
the whole law, every little bit, every dot, comma, the whole law will not pass away until, uh, pass away before the earth. And the, sorry, the heaven and earth will not pass away before the whole law does. The whole law will pass away before heaven and earth does. The whole law. There's no partial splitting up. Well, we'll take the Ten Commandments and see how we do. There's no, there's going to be a point, Jesus says, when there is no more law and it'll happen before the end of the world. Verse 19, Jesus moves on and says, Whoever then annuls one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, so first thing, I, well, next thing I want to say is, how can Jesus be instructing spirit-filled Christians to keep the law? In this passage, like some teach. He can't be. Because if he is, if he's referring to us when he says, whoever then annuls one of these tiny commandments... If he is speaking to the spirit-filled believer, then that would mean that we must obey the law, civil, moral, and ceremonial, in every regard as Christians. True? If he's referring to us, he would be commanding us to do this. It's the whole law, not just the Ten Commandments. The whole law. Well, what's happening here? Well, I like what R.T. Kendall says about verse 19. He says, you need to understand verse 19 in two ways. You need to understand Jesus' application pre-Pentecost. Pentecost, birthday of the church, if we can call it that. Pentecost, birthday of the church. Who was Jesus addressing pre-Pentecost? What does it mean pre-Pentecost? And what does what Jesus is saying here mean post-Pentecost? In other words, after the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church. What, what do we do? Because if we look at this passage pre-Pentecost and understand what it means then and understand what it means post, I think we will understand what this means. When he says that if the least, um, the, whoever uh, keeps and teaches the least shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven, who was he talking about? Is he talking about, for example, the Pharisees? Well, no, because the Pharisees weren't entering the kingdom of heaven, were they? Everybody else, the poor, the needy, the sinners were entering the kingdom of heaven. They were believing the good news, but the Pharisees weren't. What was he saying? Well, let me put it very simply this. Jesus was saying this. He's saying this. I have not yet done everything that I need to do in regard to the, the law. I've got two or three years left on this earth. And then when I'm on the cross and I say, it is finished, tetelostai is the Greek word, which means it's complete, it's finished, I've accomplished. When I'm on the cross and I say, it is finished, at that moment, the law will be fulfilled, the law will be accomplished. At that moment, the law's purpose will have been fulfilled and it'll be no more law. But he, at that moment, he hadn't reached it, had he? He still had to live under the scrutiny of the law until this time uh, took place. And so he, he was defending the law. I think he was under attack. I think Jesus, people were going around, especially the Pharisees, saying, you know, this, this man, he heals on the Sabbath. You, you know, you know this, this, this man, he, his disciples, take whatever bit of corn 
they like and eat it. This, this man does all these things that's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He's a lawbreaker. He doesn't respect the law. And Jesus is saying, I do respect the law. Nothing, not one point of it shall pass away until it's done everything that the law is meant to do. So he knew that he still had two or three years. And not only was he saying that I am going to follow the law, but he was saying, so shall my disciples I will expect my disciples for the next two or three years to follow my example. Of course, they couldn't do it perfectly, could they? But he expected his disciples to keep the Sabbath for the next two or three years or whatever long, how long we had. He expected them not to eat pork. He expected them to do these things because he says, he says that the time, the time will come when it's fulfilled. The time will come when it's accomplished and it will be accomplished. Heaven, it'll be accomplished before heaven and earth pass away. And so Jesus is saying that his disciples should walk according to the precepts of the law. And you know, Jesus never disobeyed the law and his disciples did their best to keep the law and follow his example. I mean, when you hear Jesus, uh, for example, in Mark's gospel, it says, uh, it's not what goes into a man's stomach that makes him unclean, but what comes out of his heart. And as we progress in Sermon on the Mount, we will see that Jesus is teaching a righteousness of the heart, not just a righteousness of the outward that the Pharisees were keeping. And Mark says he thus pronounced all foods clean. But don't think that disciples from that moment started eating unclean food. It wasn't yet the time. So pre-Pentecost, Jesus is basically saying this. Some of you are wondering whether I've abolished the law, that I'm not interested in the law. Some of you are wondering when I'm preaching the gospel and talking about freedom and liberty and talking about the Beatitudes. Some of you are thinking he doesn't bother about the law. He's, he thinks we, he's going to abolish it, throw it in the bin. And Jesus says, don't think that. No one thinks more highly of the law than myself. In fact, not one dot or comma will be taken away from the law until the time for fulfillment has come. And therefore, anyone that teaches the full law will be blessed. And everyone that follows the law, but anyone who, who, who disregards the law, well, they'll be cursed. And so, he followed the law. But of course, the time did come when the law was fulfilled, when he died on the cross. Jesus had taken the full examination of the law. It was a lifelong test. You know, you have an examination and you sit there and sometimes there's a three-hour exam, isn't there? And you sit there, lots of our children and people have been having their GCSEs and A-levels. They're going, they're sitting for three hours and they're under a test trying to get the best grade that they could. Do you know, Jesus' examination started the moment that he was born. The moment he was born. Because it said he was born under the law. He chose to be under the law. And from the moment he was born to the moment that he cried on the cross, it is finished. He was under examination conditions. And the law was watching him 24-7 to see that he fulfilled all the requirements of the law. And he fulfilled them. Not just the outward requirements, but the inward requirements. To see if he'd fulfill them. To see if he'd pass the test. And Jesus passed the test. 100%. 
And, and you know what Jesus teaches us and Galatians teaches us? It teaches us this. Jesus passed the test through his life and death. He passed the test and by faith we got the grade. We have a righteousness that Jesus bought for us, if I can put it that way, through his lifelong obedience. You weren't just saved by his death on the cross. Do you know that? You were saved by his obedience throughout the law. Everything that Jesus did, he did on your behalf. So when we're speaking about post-cross, post-Pentecost, well then, the law has been fulfilled. Jesus' prophecy None of it will pass away until it's been accomplished, till it's been fulfilled. Now, on the day of Pentecost, everything had been fulfilled. The test had been passed once and for all, for all who believe in Jesus. There's no need for the law. Through the law, Paul says, I died to the law that now I can live for Christ. The law has no more part to play in the believer's life in any way, shape, or form its purpose has been fulfilled its purpose has been accomplished now it's not about a bit of the law the completely the law has been abolished for the spirit filled believer isn't that wonderful this is what Jesus is talking about here it's as plain as the words that we're reading here pre-Pentecost understanding post-Pentecost understanding and then in verse 20 he says, uh, he says this, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's a powerful statement. You should have seen the look on the faces of the common people when he said that. You have to understand, the Pharisees and the scribes outwardly were very holy people i mean they were the elite of the elite paul himself at this time was a, did not believe in jesus was a pharisee of pharisees i mean they obeyed the law meticulously the washing of everything they did their best for every comma and dot of the law to be fulfilled the scribes these many of them many of the scribes were pharisees but the scribes especially were the teachers the te- it would be it would be like me coming to you and saying, whoever you're, whoever you're, the teachers that bless you, you know, it'd be like me saying, unless you have a righteousness that exceeds Artie Kendall, Derek Prince, Colin Dye, any other names? <laughs> unless your righteousness exceeds these men, you shan't enter the kingdom of God. Or whoever, you know, the teacher that you respect most. Uh, you know. And you look and think, oh my God. The standard set high. I mean, if those men or, or women, Joyce Meyer maybe, if those men or women, if, if, if we have to be higher righteousness than them, live more for God than them, it's finished. And think about in those days when the Pharisees were the keepers of the law. Wow, what is Jesus saying here? Well, you know, if they were to live under the law alone, they would not be able to do that. Maybe match the Pharisees by becoming the Pharisees. But Jesus, when he speaks about this, he's talking about a righteousness that doesn't come from the rags of human effort. The rags of human effort and human righteousness, that's all the Pharisees had. 
He was speaking about a righteousness that is a gift. A righteousness that comes from God. An imputed righteousness. Can anybody tell me what imputed righteousness means? Imputed righteousness simply means this. It's what God thinks of you when you believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, then God imputes to you, ascribes to you, accounts to you all the righteousness that Jesus has. All the good work that Jesus did, the fact that he fulfilled the law, the fact that he was in perfect obedience to the Father. When you just believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, the Father looks at you and he says, I impute to you, I account to you, I regard you, I consider you as holy as my son. We're clothed in Christ. We are in Christ. Everything that happened to Jesus happened to us. Everything that Jesus accomplished, we accomplished in him. All that Jesus accomplished is ours by faith. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything about it. We just received it by faith. Imputed righteousness. How wonderful. That's what salvation is. So that's a righteousness that's better than the Pharisees. When God looks at you, if you're a believer today, he says, as righteous as Jesus by faith. Praise the Lord. But it's not just about imputed righteousness, our standing before God, that we're justified. But also, this is about living righteously. It's not just about being in Christ, is it? It's about Christ being in us. Because we're in Christ, whatever situation we're in right now, whether we're holy or not holy, if we truly believe and we're in Christ, we're saved. He's fulfilled the standard of righteous. I'm as righteous as you. You're as righteous as me if you're a believer today because of Jesus. But Christ wants to work in our lives, doesn't he? This is what the sermon is about. It's about spirit-filled living. How do we now live? Thank God. God treats me like his son when it comes to forgiveness. But I'm still on earth. I want to live saved. I want, to, I want God to change my life. I want a righteousness. Well, this is the righteousness. And there is only one law. And Jesus' law is this. This is my new commandment. That this commandment I give to you. That you love one another. This is the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is the righteousness that, that, that can't touch them. And if we go on, and we will unpackage these next week, but let's have a look. Immediately, Jesus begins to describe what this righteousness, how it looks. Remember, the rest of this is an exposition of the Beatitudes. He says, a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. And then he says this, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to court. But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And we'll come back to that. But th then he starts talking about going to the altar with your offering. And, and saying, first be reconciled with your... Um, with your brother. Verse 27, he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever's committed lust in his heart has already committed adultery. And again and again, we will go through chapter 5 and 6 and see that the righteousness that Jesus is now speaking about is not external. It's the heart. 
there was a promise fulfilled in the new covenant that God would put his laws in our hearts and that he'd take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. The righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees isn't the whitewashed tomb. Everything looks like all right on the outside. The Pharisees knew they, would, they, they shouldn't commit adultery. But to them it was just the outward act. Jesus was saying what matters is the inward heart. Because Jesus knows that really the whole life flows from what's in here. You know the heart of the trouble of mankind is trouble in the heart. And, and, and God doesn't come to give you heart surgery. He doesn't take the old man, the old unregenerate, non-born again heart and say, let me see if I can just do a little bit of a heart bypass here, put in a pacemaker and try and get that old, lost, sinful heart. See if I can get it pumping and get it going a bit. Do you know what Jesus does? When we believe in him, he comes in by the Spirit, puts his hand inside our heart, takes out the heart of stone that was crucified with Christ and gives us a new heart. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. He gives you a new heart. You become a new creation. Hallelujah. Your spirit is born again. And now within you resides the seed of God. And you're filled with the Spirit. You receive the gift of the Spirit. And Paul says, you know, you, you don't have to walk by the law anymore. Because if you walk by the Spirit, you're at a higher level than the law. The law says, don't do this. Do that. Act like this. Don't act like. The law is the teacher of the naughty class. And when the teacher teaches a naughty class, the naughty class says, we're not going to do it. And the law says, if you don't do it, I'll punish you. It's outward to outward. I won't do it. Teacher says, detention, three weeks. Pupil says, I'll do it. You know, the, the best that the law can bring is this, like the naughty child. And the teacher said, sit down. He said, no, sit down, no. Sit down or you'll be punished. And he said to himself, I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> it's the best that the law can do. The best that the law can do. But when the law, that tutor, that teacher of the naughty class was removed, a new people arose. Not of the old naughty class that had to be pushed and, and frightened and, and punished into outward reaction. But there was a new people. A people that were born of the spirit of love. A people that God poured the spirit of love into their heart. That inside our heart didn't cry, cry out, oh holy teacher, but cried out, Abba. Father, a spirit that entered in our hearts and said, I will lead you. I will lead you in the things of goodness and righteousness, of love, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And, and, and those that had followed Jesus for those two or three years, it wasn't lost that they tried to follow the example of the law. Because it was like they were being trained in obedience. They couldn't properly do it. But now, his disciples, who for those two or three years tried to follow Jesus' example and failed miserably at every point, as every human being who tried to follow the law of Jesus did. Those disciples trying to, oh God, we're trying to, Jesus, we're trying to follow you. We're trying to do the law, but we can't. And on the day of Pentecost, they realized they didn't have to follow laws and rules and regulations anymore. It was like the law of love. Bear one another's burdens. Do unto others as they'll do unto you. And then it was like, Show me, Holy Spirit. Lead me. 
I'm ready to walk with you, to walk by the Spirit, in step with the Spirit. And now it was no longer about laws. It was about, are you grieving the Holy Spirit or walking with the Holy Spirit? It's time for me to end, but Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31 is very interesting because we're going to move next into the principle and example of anger. We'll do that next week. You shall not commit murder, but whoever... Uh, is angry with somebody in their heart has already committed murder. And you look at that. that Jesus, Jesus is saying this is a righteousness above the law. A righteousness above the law. This is an example of a spirit-filled believer who doesn't just on the outside keep calm, but realizes that if there's a wrong anger in their heart, it needs to be dealt with. And Ephesians chapter 4, 31, when it speaks about grieving the spirit, starts with anger. The same thing that Jesus does. And what we're going to do when we pick this up next week is we're going to go through some examples of how we, as spirit-filled, spirit-led believers, examples in daily life of how we should react, respond, and act. You say, how do I live the Beatitudes? How do I live free from the Lord? What sort of person should I be? What sort of person has God cre- recreated me to be? We're going to see illustrations, principles and examples. Not laws. Examples. That's what, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see this um, right through. We're going, to, we're going to see examples coming up to chapter 6. And chapter 6, I'm really looking forward to when we eventually get there. Because chapter 6 is all about the spirit-filled believer simply walking and trusting the Father. I can't resist it. Here's a quick key. In case you want to start living this before we get to that point. Live your life. React. Speak. Live it in the light of what your father thinks. Your father thinks, not what others think. Think of a situation that I had to walk in. A difficult situation I had to go to. A difficult meeting with somebody. And I was concerned about how it would go. How, whether there'd be reactions. Whether it would turn. So I was concerned about this difficult meeting. And out of the Sermon on the Mount... Looking at the examples in chapter 6, I realized that the answer was, Bruce, when you're in that meeting, react as, as would please the Father. Whatever you say, let it be pleasing to the Father. Don't judge, don't... Whatever you say, say, is this, would this be acceptable to my Father? Not acceptable to the person, acceptable to the Father. And I took that principle, prayed, led by the Spirit, and it was a wonderful time. And that was a while ago. So uh, we're, we're going on a journey together in these days. We're looking at the model of spirit-filled living. And you know, as we look at this, it's not just, okay, I'll try. God's going to work in our hearts. He's going to change us as we speak. These are, this is the gospel. This is living the gospel. This is, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, This is the illustrations, examples, all of the Sermon on the Mount is an unpackaging of Jesus' commandment to love one another as he loved us. This is simply what R.T. Kendall says, Jesus' teaching and doctrine of the Holy Spirit. God bless you all.